have, uh, I've only caught one fish in my life. And it was an accident, actually. And really, actually, I didn't catch it. My second cousin and my brother did when they accidentally left a fishing pole out on the dock with a bait and a bobber overnight. Now, you're not supposed to do that, but it was an accident, okay? They awoke in the morning and they uh, found a pretty good-sized fish on the end of the line. It was a, a northern pike. And it was struggling against the line and the reel. And, and so they rushed over. They could tell. Um, somehow the fishing pole was like connected to the dock. I can't quite remember. Uh, but they went and they reeled in this fish. And the fish was, it was exhausted. You could see it. It had, it had given up the fight once it was out of the water and it just laid there. You know, sometimes fish flop about. This one didn't. It just laid there like, thank you for putting me out of my misery. And while the fish tasted good, I will tell you, fried with cornmeal by my grandmother, what I remember more than that was the look on my cousin's face upon realizing how hard the struggle had been for the fish. See, he was tender towards the things of creation, and, and he ached at watching this fish struggle, perhaps suffering for hours connected to the line, trying to get away. You see, our series on listening, this posture that we take with God, leads us to examine one more prophet uh, as we are paying attention to the call of the prophets um, these last three weeks and then this fourth week. And we are going to pay attention to this prophet, Jonah. I love Jonah because Jonah is a, a spicy and he's a little whiny uh, and he's blunt. And he's also very much in the throes of sorting out his theology while God is calling him to be a prophet. I love that. He's not ready uh, for what God is going to do through his life. And he is not ready for the things that are going to have to come out of his mouth. Really, truly, he's not ready for the God that he is going to encounter. So would you uh, encounter this God with me in the book of Jonah? We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is in the Old Testament. It is a, a, a prophetic book or a book about the prophets, which means it's in, in the Old Testament, um, right about here, somewhere nearish the New Testament, but not quite there yet. Jonah chapter 1. We're specifically paying attention to the calls of the prophets. Oh, could we spend weeks and weeks in the book of Jonah? We won't today. We're specifically looking at what God's call was for Jonah and then how Jonah responds to that call in that listening relationship. And so here we're going to look at um, all the way through the sermon. We're going to kind of break this up in chunks. So we're just going to look at verses 1 through 3 right now. Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This doesn't sound like listening to me, does it? So God 
calls Jonah. This is God's activity with Jonah. And, and God's specific call is to rise and go. We don't get that in the English because they cut some stuff out, and that's a bummer. But, but God's call is to rise and go, and this is important, the rising part. You see, because Nineveh was the Assyrian capital, all right? And the Assyrians were especially known not for being delightful fairies, but for their violent and very grotesque behavior towards their enemies. And you need to know that one of their arch enemies, their worst enemies of all, was Israel. And you also need to know that Jonah was a prophet of God, Yahweh, who was the God of Israel. So basically, God is sending Jonah as a prophet to people that resemble uh, Emperor Palpatine, Voldemort, and Hannibal Lecter all combined. And Jonah is to go to them and share that God wants to be close to them. And that God wants to them to draw close to God. So what does Jonah do? God calls Jonah to rise and go. And so Jonah, in verse 3, it says, Jonah rises and he flees. <laughs> rises and flees. Now, fleeing is not going, right? Fleeing is not going. Fleeing is abandoning the mission of the call to go in the opposite direction. You see, Tarshish was in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. This was not a, a Jonah, like, lollygagging uh, his way towards Nineveh, like accidentally making a few pit stops to elongate the process of, of, of encountering his mortal enemies. It was a deliberate decision to do exactly not what God asked. Here we are, a series on listening. We don't have a very good example, it seems, so far. But what really prompts my curiosity here in Jonah is the question of why Jonah ran away. The text is very clear about this. He didn't run away for fear of terrible enemies. This uh, was not a fight, flight, flee, or freeze kind of scenario. If it was, then the text would say that Jonah was afraid of what the Ninevites would do to him, and so then he ran away. And actually, I would give him credit for this given what our history books tell us about the Assyrians. I even started preparing a sermon <laughs> under the assumption that Jonah was just afraid of the Ninevites, and so we should be compassionate towards him because we would do the same thing when we were faced with this kind of threatening circumstance. But that is not what's in the text. That's not what's here. Verse 3 says, Jonah ran away from the Lord. Jonah runs because of who God is. Jonah disagrees with God's way of dealing with people, especially terrible people in the world. You see, the act of sending Jonah to these horrendous people is an act of God moving towards the people whom Jonah has disregarded as having any ability to belong to God. He cannot, uh, Jonah cannot and, and will not conceive of the notion that God always errs on the side of reconciling the whole world back to God's self. Jonah won't have it. 
and won't have it yet. So this is what happens. He's on the run. Pick up your Bibles. We'll read verses 4 through 6. He's fleed from the Lord. Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And then uh, they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Jonah's on the run, and he may be fast, but God is faster. And so God pursues Jonah with a storm, with a violent storm. Maybe it's even a hurricane. And you'd think at first raindrop uh, that, that Jonah would recognize God. Oh, oh, the rain has come. I'll turn around. Don't worry about me, but that's not what happens. The text says that Jonah actually buries himself. It would be significant uh, to those who heard this text in their own Hebrew language that Jonah went down. Okay, it says in the text that Jonah went down to Joppa, that he went low into the ship when the storm arose, and then he went further down into a deep sleep. And the word for this kind of downward progression in Hebrew is yarad. You see, Jonah is sinking into his own disagreement with God and the ways of God. And then he's burying himself in his own theology, in his own comfort, in his own perception of the world. Down in the hull of that ship, covered in the shroud of his sleep, he is safe. Jonah is. Jonah is safe from a God who is always reconciling the world back to God's self. And the paradox here is rich. Jonah would rather be buried than be with God. And Jonah's sleep in the ship reveals his indifference to his own life and then to the lives of others, those who are actually on the ship with him, let alone all the Ninevites that he's completely ignoring. You see, this ship is certainly going to break apart, and he will drown, and everyone else is going to drown with him. He finds himself indifferent to their situation. He finds himself indifferent to his own situation. He's actually preferring to disassociate from reality than to actually address what's going on. Listening to God is some of the hardest work that you and I could ever do. It requires attention and intention, and most of all, it requires relationship. We've centered on this theme of, of relationship of, as we've considered God's interaction with the prophets. That God wants a relationship not just with the prophet, but with the people the prophet is going to talk to. This is God's primary interest, relationship. And we know that with any relationship comes conflict, right? If conflict is a, a struggle between opposing forces, then we know that 
conflicts arise when any two entities are connected with one another. Conflict is, is not sinful, but we can certainly be sinful in conflict. Conflict with God is not a sin, but we can certainly be sinning when we are in conflict with God. And because God desires that, that humans would have free will, we find ourselves in conflict with God a lot. I've come to consider that maybe Jonah's struggle with God is a very helpful illustration for the modes of conflict that humans engage with. All right? There's a, 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 a really smart person, okay? Thomas Kilman, or maybe two smart people, I don't know, uh, who created a chart to define these conflict modes, uh, the ways that human interact Humans interact in conflict. Will you pull up that chart for me, Daryl? I appreciate this. And, and huge thanks to Megan Jones for putting this together because you should have seen my attempts at making this chart. It was horrendous, all right? Uh, this, is, this is the Thomas Kilman mo uh, conflict modes, and, and it's on a chart here. Um, and there are two planes. First, on the horizontal, that's right. First on the horizontal is a concern for self. All right? And on the vertical is a concern for others. And then uh, within that, there are kind of five categories. All right? Uh, you have a low concern for yourself and others, you would be avoiding in conflict. All right? This is where we find Jonah. Uh, if you have a high concern for others but a lower concern for yourself, you are accommodating in conflict. If you have a high concern for self but low concern for others, you are competitive. If you can find a medium concern for self and concern for others, you're compromising. And if you have a high concern for self and a high concern for others, you find this work of collaboration. All right. Now, each of these modes of conflict um, describe where we can find ourselves and our behaviors when we are in the midst of conflict. And it's important to mention that each of these have a, a beneficial function in the, in the varieties of conflicts that we find ourselves in. The goal is not always um, collaboration. It really is not. Sometimes competition is helpful. Sometimes compromise is helpful. So is actually accommodation and avoidance. All right? The goal is not just to get yourself on the high plane. Uh, of collaboration, but to acknowledge where you are or, or the tendencies you have in a conflict so that you might name them, so that you might own how you are in a conflict or, or how the conflict is going itself, and if there are areas of growth that you might need to tap into uh, to create uh, a more healthy and whole conflict. To be certain, God is found in each section of this chart, this graph, because God's will is to be found by God's people. That, let me clarify that. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that uh, God does not compete with us, okay? God does not compete with us, but, but God would be found in competition. God does not always accommodate 
to our every want and need, but God is interested in becoming familiar to us. It is not always necessary that God would compromise with us, but, but we do know that God's activity with God's people is found in agreement and connection. Collaboration with God happens when we find ourselves obedient to the will of God and nothing else. And so I wonder, if you were to generalize how you handle conflict with others, what section of, of the chart would you find yourself in most often? Just consider that. I uh, spend a lot of time hanging out on that that plane, like the diagonal plane, either avoiding, compromising, hopefully collaborating sometimes. If you were to generalize, then how you handle conflict within yourself, what section of the chart would you find yourself in most often or more often? Do you, when things feel uncomfortable to you, do you avoid them? When you notice competing thoughts in your brains, do you allow the competition to rule out? When you have a sense that things might not be right, do you just accommodate to that? Or do you allow there to be some conflict? And then my last question. If you were to generalize how you handle conflict with God, what section of the chart do you find yourself in? more often? I acknowledge this is a doozy of a question. These may be some uncomfortable ideas, uncomfortable questions to consider, and you may uh, find yourself looking for a lifeboat or perhaps even a fish of sorts, but before we move on, I want us to practice a prayer that we've invited you to practice uh, during this series called Centering Prayer. Centering prayer is a method of contemplation where we silently bring ourselves into the presence of God. And the goal is not to get an answer, but the goal is just to be with God. And so after presenting these questions, perhaps uh, you have an image. Maybe you have a feeling. Maybe you have a, a, another question, a, a frustration. I invite you to bring that to God. If it needs to have a package around it, you could do that. But I invite you to bring that to God in this space. We will take a few moments to be quiet and to listen to God with whatever this is that we have. you listen to these things with God, if there is a sense or a feeling of self-loathing, 
of inadequacy would you name those feelings and allow them to pass by As you sit with this question, can you imagine God's response to you? If God's response sounds judgmental, not just judgment, but judgmental, You've asked God to be more clear with you. If you're sensing the need to rush along, to hurry up the process, you settle into God's slow character. God, we are listening, especially when it's difficult. Amen. I invite you, if something came up, don't let it run away, all right? Catch it, if you would. Write it down. Take out your phone. See if you can capture that just for a little bit. And keep holding on to that, even while I'm up here finishing this up. This is the hope, the prayer, is that God is speaking. And it may not be right here. It may be there. So let God keep going. The presence of conflict in a relationship means that there is something of value and significance and worth to contend with. And you see, for God, it's so that God can get close. And in Jonah, it was so that God could get close to both Jonah and the Ninevites. And for Jonah, it was to reckon with God's character and desire to see the whole world reconciled into right relationship. The story keeps going. And if you're in a place where you're ready to continue reading the story, this is, um, we're going to read verses 7 through 17. The story keeps going. Then the sailors said to one another, by the way, Jonah's still in the ship. Come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And so they ask him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Don't you love that question? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship, catch this, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, 
And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Verse 17, which is in a different section than all this other section. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Yuck. Before Jonah could ever be the prophet God called him to be, to proclaim to the Ninevites God's graciousness and compassion, Jonah needed to experience it in his own body, in his own story, in his own life. And the scene on the boat is, is part of God's graciousness towards Jonah and towards the people Jonah is with. You see, now Jonah's call has actually expanded, and it's included more people that were not in the original plan. God never said, go down, sail on a ship from Joppa to Tarshish, and you'll happen to talk to some sailors there. No. Even in Jonah's disobedience, in his avoidance of conflict, God is found coming near to people. I love that. He had to see uh, that it could be true for strangers. Jonah did. He had to see that it could be true for strangers and then true for himself before he could ever believe that it could be true for the Ninevites. Part of being given over to God's compassion for Jonah is for Jonah to be thrown into the sea. I find that very interesting. You see, he's as good as dead. He's gone down, 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 right, into a deep sleep. He's buried himself. And then Jonah says, just throw me in. Like, it makes no sense anymore. It's better for me to die. But God is interested in closeness, in redemption, in bringing the prophet through the process before he can proclaim it. And so there is a great fish. And God has not thrown Jonah out. God doesn't think that Jonah is unredeemable. God doesn't give up ever. God wants Jonah to embody the good news that he is preparing to proclaim graciousness and compassion, slowness to anger, abundance of love. And so Jonah proclaims this for himself in a conversation with God after he's spit out of the fish. He goes to Nineveh and he says, Nineveh, just God wants you, okay? Apparently God wants me too. And so God, uh, so the, the, the Ninevites, by the way, they turn around, they repent, and they come to God. And God sees the Ninevites' repentance and he does not destroy them, all right? This is Voldemort coming to Jesus, and God does not destroy them. 
And Jonah, Jonah's disappointed. All the way through. I mean, the man lived in a fish for three days, and he's still disappointed that God wouldn't do something to them. Why didn't God make the fish swallow all the Ninevites? Jonah is still struggling. And even though he himself has experienced this kind of God, this gracious God, the idea that God would not respond as we deserve drives Jonah crazy. And so Jonah has this conversation with God in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knew it. But I also wonder if he knew it. I knew. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You are a God who relents from sending calamity. Throughout the whole work of Jonah's prophetic responsibilities, it's as though he needed to hear this good news, to experience this good news, even before he could ever share it. So Jonah's word to the Ninevites and to God come to us now. God is gracious and compassionate to you. God is slow to anger with you. God is abounding in love for you. You cannot sink yourself. You cannot sink yourself by disagreeing with God or the ways of God. You can't. You cannot bury yourself alive in your own theology and comfort. God won't let you. Your conflicts within yourself, with others, with God, they will not be your end. Because God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. In fact, you, you might even meet God in conflict. You might even meet God in the conflicts within yourself, in the conflicts you experience with your neighbor or your enemy. You might even meet God in the conflicts you have with God. That is how gracious God is. That is how gracious God is. Would you pray with me? Gracious and compassionate God, we just really don't deserve it. And yet you lavish it generously because you love us. God, we bring to mind our conflicts. The ones we know and the ones we don't know. The ones we're very aware of. The ones that may be coming. And we ask that we would not count ourselves out or count you out of the process. Would we be patient? Would we be hungry? And God, as we come to this table, we pray that we might receive you again and again.